Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what a delight. I got to sit down in the offices of Ed Thorpe and chat for two hours about pretty much everything. Uh, You may know the name Ed Thorpe. I describe him as really the first quantitatively driven hedge fund manager uh, of, of any import. He was Jim Simons of Renaissance Technologies while Jim Simons was still a uh, undergraduate math professor. He is the author initially of the book Beat the Dealer, where he figured out how to actually beat the house in blackjack. His analysis, his mathematical analysis of, of blackjack led Las Vegas and casinos everywhere to completely change how they deal blackjack. They now use half a dozen uh, decks instead of a single deck. They're random reshuffles. They utterly have changed the rules in response to Ed Thorpe. He then figures out the physics behind beating, wait for it, roulette and working with information theorist Claude Shannon at MIT. The two of them come up with a wearable computer. Uh, eventually, they get thrown out of all the casinos. The casinos don't really like losing money to MIT math professors. He relocates to Irvine, uh, UC in California, and starts thinking about, well, what else is math-heavy and filled with inefficiencies that has the potential, when statistical theory is applied properly, to generate large amounts of of money, and finds his way onto Wall Street. And, And his second book is called Beat the Market, and explains how when you can find two related equity issuances that are mispriced, there's an arbitrage opportunity. Believe it or not, before that, no one was really doing that sort of statistical arbitrage between a stock and a warrant or eventually a stock and an option. Uh, He's had an absolutely fascinating career and a fascinating life. His autobiography is called A Man for All Markets, and it's really quite intriguing. Uh, Footnote to this entire conversation after we finish the interview, my assumption is that, hey, he's got to be tired of hearing my voice. Uh, but he invites us to dinner and, and three of us went and had a, uh, a lovely meal there in Newport Beach. And, and he's just an absolutely fascinating um, person and really a character uh, who is beyond influential in the worlds of um, quants and algorithms and hedge funds and you name it, his impact on finance uh, can't be understated. So, can't be overstated. So, with no further ado, my conversation with Ed Thorpe. I have an extra special guest this week, and I am privileged to be sitting in his offices in glorious Newport Beach, California. Edward O. Thorpe is a legend in finance. He is an American mathematics professor, author, hedge fund manager. He is the person who essentially figured out how to beat Las Vegas. Uh, I credit him with more or less inventing card counting. Eventually, Vegas banned him from a ton of uh, 
a, a ton of casinos because he was beating the house. And his his first uh, first book was Beat the Dealer. And after he did that, he figured out ways of beating Baccarat and came up with a wearable computer and figured out how to beat roulette. roulette. And by that point, Las Vegas and Reno wanted nothing to do with him. And he took, turned his attentions towards the next uh, challenge similar to gambling. And it turned out that was investing in finance and Wall Street. And the book after that became Beat the Market because Edward figured out how to do things in a way that created substantial, substantial returns. I could talk about his curriculum vitae forever. Let me just add PhD in mathematics, taught at MIT and New Mexico and University of California, Irvine. Edward Thorpe, welcome to Bloomberg, and thank you for hosting us in your office. Thanks, Barry. It's a pleasure to meet you and uh, be here. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm going to start with some quotes of yours and just have you uh, respond them. Uh, and some of these are from Beat the Dealer. Chance can be thought of as the cards you are dealt in life. Choice is how you play them. That's a pretty deep philosophical uh, perspective. Tell us how you came to that. Well, if you look back at your own life, you probably have a number of circumstances where you could make an important choice one way or another. And uh, the way you made that choice had a big effect. Uh, The woman you married, if if you in fact did get married, Mm -hmm. uh, the children that you brought up and how you brought them up, the career you chose in life, a lot of... uh, big choices that you make at some point or other. And then there are things that you can't control, like who your parents were and what kind of economic circumstances you were brought up in, uh, where, you, where you started. Did you start 20 yards behind the start line or uh, 20 yards ahead of it or right on it? People start in different places. Uh, those are cards they're dealt. So Along those themes, you, you talk about managing risk as an investor and managing money as a gambler. You wrote, I also believe then, as I do now after more than 50 years as a money manager, the surest way to get rich is to play only those gambling games where I have an edge. Let's talk about the edge a little bit. Okay. In standard gambling games in casinos, you can generally calculate what the casino's edge is, or if you figure out how to count cards, you can calculate what your edge over the casino is. So it's a a fact, a mathematical fact, that if you play a game like this and the casino has the edge, it'll eventually collect all your money Mm -hmm. if you play long enough. On the other hand, if you have an edge, your uh, bankroll will grow and grow and grow. So basically what happens is you your bankroll either grows or shrinks depending on what your edge is or what your disadvantage is. And there's luck that pushes it up and down around that uh, growth curve. So that's that's the way things look in the gambling world. So so even when you have an edge, you have to be prepared for, hey, sometimes snake eyes comes up on the dice to, to mix metaphors a little bit. That was one of the early things that I learned, fortunately, which was how much to bet on good situations. If you bet too much, you're likely to be wiped out. Mm-hmm. If you bet too little, it takes forever to make any money. So there's a happy medium in there, and that was one of the things that I came across quite early. Well, is there a mathematical solution to what's the right amount and what's too much and too little? Well, I was put onto this by uh, uh, a famous mathematician named Claude Shannon, who I knew at MIT. And, and I have to add, 
in A Man for All Markets, you just casually mention, and, and throughout the book, you casually mention these legends in science and physics and mathematics. And, oh, so I, I went to Claude Shannon with this problem, and the two of you spent weekends. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, let's see. It, um, I got interested in the idea of beating roulette mm -hmm. when I was a high school student. But my ideas weren't very well formed, so I put it aside. And then when I went to uh, UCLA and got a, uh, a bachelor's and a master's in physics, mm -hmm. I had about seven more years of physics behind me, and I happened to be talking to people uh, at a study break in my student co-op where I lived about uh, Las Vegas. Some people had just come back and said, you, you can't beat those guys. So I said, well, I think you can, and here's how I would go about it. So I described predicting roulette using physics, and they argued back and forth, and half the people believed me and half of them didn't. Mm -hmm. But I convinced myself from the argument and all the new physics that I had learned in the interim from high school that, yes, this, this is very likely to work. So I set out to do that. And you created a wearable computer working with Shannon and other people, is that right? Uh, what happened was uh, I went to Las Vegas uh, with my wife over Christmas vacation. Uh, by this time, I had a PhD in math at UCLA, mm -hmm. and I was going there just for a, a cheap, cheap vacation over Christmas, but I wanted to see roulette wheels because I was busy working on beating roulette, and I wanted to verify by close-up observation of their wheels that what I was doing was likely to work. And on the way, I heard about uh, a blackjack paper that some statisticians had read. So I thought, well, I'll get a little casino experience. I'm going to need it if I'm going to be playing roulette. So I sat down at the blackjack table and played for about 40 minutes. And I, I learned enough during that 40 minutes to realize I could probably beat blackjack. And I went back and set to work doing that. And blackjack is one of those situations. Back then, there was one deck. They didn't shuffle it. They played pretty much through to the 52 cards. That's right. That was astonishing that nobody had sat back and said, oh, we should be able to track the math of this and figure out how to beat the dealer. Well, there had been some uh, savvy gamblers who had figured out that if you kept track of the cards and near the end there were lots of aces and tens, mm -hmm. then there'd be more blackjacks being dealt. Mm -hmm. And blackjacks then, and sometimes still now, pay three to two if the player gets one, and just even money if the dealer gets one, he basically collects your bet. So the more black, uh, when the deck's rich in aces and tens, the higher frequency of blackjacks shifts the edge in favor of the players. So they would sit there and wait and wait and wait until there were lots of aces and tens near the end of a deck. Then they bet a whole lot of money. Raise the bets and, and hope the statistics just play out over time. Yes, and that worked, but it took a long time, and it meant huge swings in the amounts they bet. And the casinos kind of caught on to that and mm -hmm. got rid of these guys. They don't like uh, people who are betting legitimately and winning. They seem to have a problem with that. Well, after I wrote a book about card counting, Beat the Dealer, and it came out, mm -hmm. they had a crisis in Las Vegas. There were tens of thousands of players coming out, and <laughs> a few hundred of which learned how to count cards properly. And these players were upsetting them very much. So on April Fool's Day of 1964, they announced a rules change. The Las Vegas Re Resort Hotel Association had a big meeting and decided what to do. They had a lot of uh, 
suggestions like break his knees or <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> nice <they> guys <laughs> but but they changed the rules and, and they went from one deck to six or eight is well, that right uh, that was a sort of a separate parallel evolution what they did was they restricted what players could do they couldn't uh, split as many pairs they couldn't double down as much mm-hmm. that sort of thing and i predicted that the players would would not like this and they'd leave the tables in droves, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. So they quietly went back to the old rules. And then they did what you mentioned. They began to introduce what they called professor stoppers, which were oh, uh, two, hilarious. four, six, or eight decks. And they began to deal them out of shoes because it was pretty hard to hold four right. to eight decks in your hand and try to deal. Professor stoppers. Yeah. That, that's hilarious. So let's talk a little bit about information theory because there's a, a line that you have about the great physics professor Richard Feynman, and you went to him with your concept about physical prediction of roulette. And Feynman said, no, I really don't think anybody can beat roulette. And you were thrilled with that answer. Yes, very much so. Explain why, because I love the thought process here. Well, (coughs) Feynman had, had two graduate students that had figured out a way to beat defective roulette wheels, ones which weren't properly maintained or machined. Mm -hmm. And they had made uh, several thousand dollars doing this back in the early 50s. So he knew about, he knew that fact about roulette. Mm -hmm. And he also understood the edge that casinos had and how the mathematical edge would grind down players. So he knew that mathematics had shown you couldn't beat roulette in the normal fashion of varying your bets up and down. In other words, it's a game of chance, it's a random outcome, and ultimately the house wins if you play long enough. Exactly. So he knew those two things. And he himself uh, had been in Las Vegas, and he saw he saw a guy wandering around betting on uh, red and black on roulette wheels. So he said to the guy, look, I'll bankroll it for you. Uh, the guy was betting $5 a hand. Mm-hmm. He said, just bet with me. So the guy would go over and he'd say red, and the wheel would spin. And if he won, Feynman would pay him $5. And if he lost, he'd pay Feynman $5. Mm-hmm. This went on for a while until Feynman was down $80 or so, at which point Feynman quit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And that's le- pretty random that he's just betting one way or another. Yeah. And w- what Feynman didn't realize was that psychologically his bankroll was $80, and that wasn't big enough to be a casino. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yes. So, so when Feynman said, I don't think this could be done— that encouraged you. And I, I figured here's, here's one of the best physicists on earth. He knows about roulette. He knows about a lot of math. And yet he thinks it's not possible. But I think it's possible. So if he thinks it's not possible, probably everybody else does too. Mm-hmm. So that means I've got this all to myself. That, that's, a, that's a fascinating way that's like the little kid and the pony, the old, yeah. the old joke. Hey, if Feynman doesn't think it, then there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> um, another quote from the book, most market participants have no demonstrable advantage. For them, just as the cards in blackjacks or the numbers at roulette seem to appear at random, the market appears to be completely efficient. But you disagree with that assessment. Well... When people talk about efficient markets, they think it's a property of the market. Mm-hmm. But I think that's not the way to look at it. It's The market is a process that goes on. And we have, depending on who we are, different degrees of knowledge about different parts of that process. I'll give you an example. Suppose I take a coin here uh, where we're sitting, and I flip it up and let you call heads or tails. You'll probably think that the outcome's random. And for Assuming you, it's a true coin, sure. Yes. So... And people can argue about whether coins are true or not, but the distinctions are very minor. Mm -hmm. uh, Essentially, it's 50-50. 
So you can say, well, you know, it's, it's random. I, I'm willing to call you heads or tails. Now suppose that I, like Claude Shannon, b take a sandbox and a little lever with a cup on it mm -hmm. and uh, move the lever down a, a measured amount and let it flip the coin. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what Shannon found out was that the coin would flip a number of turns that he could calculate depending on how far down he pulled the lever before he released it. So he could have it spin three and a half times, for example. So if heads were up and he spun it three and a half times, it would land tails. S so, simple problem of force, angular momentum, and, and amount of distance it travels. Exactly. So given the extra information, that coin becomes fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. So it's the same with markets. Depending, it depends on the information you have. And of course, people who do insider trading do a pretty good job of uh, predicting a market that seems random to most people. So a few quotes of yours that I find fascinating. Gambling is investing simplified. I think that's really interesting that investing has become more complex than gambling. Why is that? Well, with most gambling games, you can calculate probabilities. And so you know what the odds are in any given situation. And you can figure out pretty accurately how much to bet. With a security, it's more difficult. You only have rough estimates. For example, there's something called the uh, log-normal probability distribution that is a, a rough model for how stock prices change. Mm -hmm. But it's not an exact model. And it has parameters in it, like volatility. And if you make a supposition as to what the volatility is going to be in the near future, you can get an idea of the distribution of prices of a particular stock in the future. But you might be off in what you think the volatility is going to be, and so your distribution will be off. So anyhow, it's, it's a ma matter of estimating things that you can't get exactly, you can't know. So, so how natural was that progression from the casinos to Wall Street, other than they're both big, interesting mathematical riddles to be solved? Well, I learned a lot of things in the casino. I would say, just as an aside, um, using a winning gambling system at a casino is perfect training for the investment world. And the reason is that you learn how to manage money, you learn how much to bet when you know what your edge is, you get a certain discipline <laughs> in conducting a strategy that you think is right. For example, let's suppose that you're an index fund investor. Mm -hmm. If you understand what the uh, probability distribution has been for an index fund in the past, then you have an idea of what kind of ups and downs you're going to be riding in the future. And when something bad happens, like 2008, 2009, you don't run out like a scared rabbit at the bottom and miss the whole climb back up to uh, new highs. So and you, yet that seems to be what many people many people do. They do, but if they had been card counters at blackjack, like the professionals I see at the blackjack ball once a year, if, if they had been, if they had that experience, uh, they wouldn't flinch at all. So in the book, you describe sort of your first tentative ventures into markets after um, the Vegas experience. Tell us how you, you began investing. Well, after I had made money both from book royalties and from card counting at Blackjack and Baccarat in Las Vegas, after I'd done that, I had money to invest for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. Academics weren't paid a whole lot then, and they're not paid a whole lot now. So finally, I, my problem was to figure out how to invest the money. So knowing nothing, I made uh, my collection of mistakes. I paid uh, Mr. Market his rather expensive tuition to learn uh, a bunch of basic things that mm -hmm. I describe in the book, things that 
behavioral finance people understand now as uh, foolish mistakes. And then I sat down for a whole summer and read everything I could on finance in a big bookstore in Beverly Hills. You described two summers of, uh, of, of learning in yeah. the library and in the bookstore. Yes. How many books did you plow through? What were you reading? Well, the, my first go-around in the, the first summer was to read whatever they had in a big Martindale's bookstore in Beverly Hills. So it was newspapers, uh, investment books, charting, fundamentals, uh, all kinds of advice. Uh, which, which leads me to ask a question, and again, it's a quote of yours. Most stock-picking stories, advice, recommendations are completely worthless. Was that, was that your takeaway back then, yes. or is that something you learned over the years? Well, it wasn't my instant takeaway, but it was something I came to fairly rapidly as I plowed through all these things. Mm-hmm. What, what is it that led you to the conclusion, which I completely agree with, that a lot of what's out there is just either conflicted or self-interested or noisy or not well-informed commentary? Well, I had a science background, mm-hmm. and I tend to draw conclusions based on information, facts, evidence. That's so old school. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, it's now it's all about the fake facts, <laughs> fake news. You're right. right. Well, I'm, I'm basically immune to all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like water running off uh, a duck or whatever. So anyhow. You brought a fairly critical eye to whatever was being passed off as market advice. Is yes. that a fair statement? Just because people said something wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. I, I had that set from the time I was uh, a child. I wanted to check it for myself mm-hmm. and verify it for myself. And, and you blew up a number of uh, chemistry kits yeah, and other yeah, such yeah. things, <laughs> which you describe uh, in the book. Um, so let's talk a little bit about returns. So one of the things you discovered are pricing inefficiencies, pricing anomalies that say, hey, here are two related um, stocks. You, you can either have a stock and a warrant or later on a stock and an option, and they should trade parallel, but they don't. Sometimes one or the other gets cheap and the other gets overvalued. Was anybody else doing those sort of paired or hedged trades at the time? No. Uh- Actually, what happened was I was, I, was uh, set my, I spent my second summer trying to learn about finance, and I got lucky. The uh, first week or so, I got a little pamphlet in the mail from something called RHM Warrant Survey. Uh, a guy named Sidney Freed, I believe that his son still runs this survey. And so it told tales of buying warrants for pennies mm-hmm. and cashing them out for dollars in the future. So as I read through it, I learned what a warrant was, and I said, hey, wait a minute, this simplifies the investing problem tremendously because the price of a warrant and the price of this underlying stock are related, so I don't have to worry about all these fundamental things. I don't have to go out and uh, talk to CEOs and read uh, balance and income statements and compare companies one to another. If these things move together, then if they get out of whack, I ought to be able to set up some kind of uh, investment, short one, long the other, that will make money for me. Mm-hmm. So I began to think then about how to, how to price a warrant, how to know when it was at a proper price or overpriced or underpriced. And so, you were using some pretty early computer technology at the time. Yes. Uh, I had actually got into using computers with blackjack. Mm-hmm. I'd done that back at MIT in 50, 1959, 1960. They had an IBM 
704 that was available then. So I taught myself Fortran and programmed it to uh, figure out the equations, solve the equations that I needed to uh, decide which cards were good to have in the deck in blackjack and which cards were good to have out of the deck. So anyhow, I had an early experience with the computers, which was uh, fortunate. So then when I got to thinking about warrants, I, I had the computer background to actually mathematicize and draw graphs and do that sort of thing. Uh, made it much more easy for me. And so you would find when these two related securities were out of uh, okay. out of sync yeah. and basically made the bet that was... Did any of them ever go against you in an unanticipated way, or did everything perform as expected? The first things we found were overpriced warrants, and I mm-hmm. happened to run into a professor at UCI uh, the first day that UCI opened for classes back in 1965. We were mm-hmm. both new faculty members, and he had written a thesis about warrants. Uh, his name was Sheen Kasuf, and so we got together and met every every day for about a year or two to develop the theory further, and then we wrote a book, Beat the Market, about it. Mm-hmm. And the warrants that we found that were overpriced, we would short, and we would buy common stock long to hedge, and every one of those was a winner, mm-hmm. and every one of them historically had been a winner. So we knew that these overpriced warrants somehow eluded the market. There were warrants with two years or less to go. And investors seemed to think that two years was forever, so they priced the warrants way high. Mm-hmm. And then the warrants, when they would wake up as the, the clock ran on the two years, the warrants would collapse in price. So you could short the warrant and buy the stock, and it was just uh, uh, one uh, 20% annualized event after another. And compounded, how did this uh, investment end up running? What did you end up uh, putting up as returns? Well, we made about 25% a year gross, and we had uh, investors, uh, faculty members at UCI, that sort of thing that uh, rode along with us. So after our, our fee, which was 20% of the profits and mm-hmm. no more, uh, they, they netted 20% a year. And we did this for uh, several years. And then uh, I went into business for myself, and uh, Sheen went off and went into business for himself. And you, um, you launched a couple of hedge funds we're going to talk about in a little bit. I, I want to ask you about one other quote of yours that I, I really enjoyed that's related to this. Every stock market system with an edge is necessarily limited in the amount of money it can use and still produce extra returns. In other words, every edge has a scale limit. It can only get so big. Yes. And and how did how did you come to that conclusion? What made you realize, hey, this can only go so far? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, the scale limit could be huge. It could be tens of billions, mm-hmm. or it could be 10 or 20 or 50 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a friend who has a commodity hedge fund that's uh, one of the best-performing ones around, and it its limit is like $75 million because mm-hmm. the trading costs get too high. What happens is if you find a pair of securities that are out of line, if one's overpriced and one's underpriced, if you start selling short the overpriced one, you'll drive its price down, so it'll be less overpriced. Mm-hmm. If you start buying the underpriced one, you'll lift its price, so it'll become less underpriced. So y- your action in trading mispriced securities tends to drive them toward the correct price, which, by the way, is a service to the other people in the market, because then they seek 
uh, securities that are more fairly priced than they would be otherwise. So not quite Schrodinger's cat. You you actually are affecting this by training it, yes. as opposed to a bigger liquid equity where a few million dollars isn't going to move the price very much. And by the way, that's one of the huge things between uh, that is a difference between finance and physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, in physics, you can do the same experiment over and over, and what you do doesn't affect the natural world. But in finance, what you do affects the uh, human world. You're you're a part. You're an observer and a participant, and affect the outcome of everybody else's exactly. uh, opportunities. Let's talk about some of the interesting things you've done and people you've met over over your career. Uh, you played bridge with Warren Buffett. Uh, tell us how that came about. Well, when I was at uh, UC Irvine, after I'd figured out how to value warrants. I started trading for my own account, and then the word spread, and I signed up people at the university who wanted me to trade for their accounts. And one of the people was the dean of the graduate division, a fellow named Ralph Waldo Gerard, National Academy of Science uh, member, among other things. And so he wanted to get to know me and find out more about this trading. So I uh, was introduced to a friend of his who was going to, uh, I didn't know this, but the friend was going to kind of check me out. And the friend was the young Warren Buffett. <laughs> so we had a dinner at uh, the Gerard house with our wives. And then uh, we ended up playing bridge. And I went down to Emerald Bay where Warren had one house and later two houses. Uh, that's not too far from here, Laguna or? Emerald Bay is about four or five miles right down the coast. Mm-hmm. It, it's at the north end of Laguna Beach. Mm-hmm. Lo- lovely part of the world. Yes. And you actually said something to your wife. I think that Warren Buffett guy is going to be the wealthiest person in America. Exactly. H- how did that thought process come about? Well, he was cashing out his uh, partnership, which mm-hmm. had about $100 million in it then. It was, it was the biggest uh, hedge fund around and also the only really successful one at that point. Uh, the runner-up was... Uh, Michael Sternhardt's fund, which was up slightly during a really bad period in um, 68 to 70. And Buffett's partnership was still doing well, but he said, things are so overpriced, I'm cashing out, which is why Ralph Gerard was looking at me. He wanted someplace to put his money that was coming out of Buffett Partners. And Buffett was vetting you to see if you were okay to take their money. Right. Which is not a bad person to be vetted by. So we got along just fine and talked about a lot of different things. And the way we thought about things was similar. That is, you know, uh, rational, evidence-based, and so forth. His method of investing, though, was a lot more hands-on than I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I wasn't invest. I wasn't interested in spending my total 100% energy and life just investing. I just thought it was an interesting thing to be involved in because I had some money to invest at the time. So the 1969 letter from Buffett to his partners explains he's winding down, and eventually he takes. Berkshire Hathaway and relaunches it um, not too not too far off in the distance. You were one of the first investors in, in Berkshire Hathaway. Is that a fair statement? No, not so early. What happened was uh, Buffett didn't tell his limited partners that what he was going to do next. What he was going to do next was turn Berkshire Hathaway into his own private mutual fund. Mm-hmm. So he had stock to distribute, and he, he could either distribute stock to the investors or give them money. And he preferred, I think, to keep the stock and give them money. So 
most of the investors were cashing out. Some of them took some Berkshire stock. And not, not a whole lot happened with Berkshire for the next decade. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was unaware that he was turning it into his own mutual fund. But in 1982, I was sitting around doing something or other with the hedge fund I was then running, Princeton Newport Partners, and I heard some news item about Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. So I focused on it, and I realized right away what had happened in the intervening 14 or 15 years, that Buffett had turned this uh, sick textile company into his own private investment uh, tool. So had I, had I known that I, had I been able to invest in Berkshire Hathaway in 1964 to 1970, I might have invested somewhere in the twelve to fifty dollar range. Okay, <laughs> but but now, but now the stock was nine hundred and eighty two dollars. Mm-hmm. So, most people would say, "Gee, it's already had a mul- a huge multiple. You don't want to buy it now." I said, "Yes, I want to buy it now." So I, I began buying in. And and how long did you hold on to Berkshire Hathaway? I still have it. You still have it yeah. to this day. So I'm compelled to ask: a hundred dollars invested in Berkshire Hathaway when you put that. In in eighty two, yeah. What would a hundred dollars be worth today? Well, it was easier for me to think in terms of a thousand because that was okay. The stock was slightly less, so it's worth roughly two hundred and fifty thousand. That's a pretty good return. Yeah. Well, how does what does that average out compounded? That mid twenties, something like that, Let's or see, better. Two hundred and fifty for thirty five years. Two hundred and fifty for thirty five years. I'm guessing mid-20s, but I'm sure I could just punch it into the computer and and get the actual answer. Yeah. But by any stretch of the imagination, it's a fabulous return. Yes. And the consistency over such a long time, there is nothing comparable to that, is there? That's amazing. How did you never get tempted to sell? Let me see if I can figure it out. Okay. Uh, I want to take the 35th 35th route of 250. So... um, so it's about e to the 5.6 over 35. So I would say I'm just, this is rough. I could be off a few percent, maybe 17% annualized. Oh, that's no big deal. He's, <laughs> you know, he should have given up a long time. But for time a very ago. long time. I, th- that's astonishing. You know, one of the things, and we just talked about it earlier, is eventually everything reaches a capacity. You can't just find an edge and scale it forever. Unless you're Warren Buffett, whose edge is a tremendous amount of um, not only intellectual capacity, but discipline and the ability to say, I don't care about this, I don't care about that, I don't care about technology, this is what I do well, and I'm going to stick to my knitting. A lot of smart people don't have that ability. Well, Warren Buffett um, agrees with the point we made earlier that as you get bigger and bigger, you tend to have capacity problems. And so you can see that in the performance of Berkshire Hathaway. There's a table in my book which shows mm-hmm. how the uh, decade by decade, how the return has dropped compared with the uh, S&P 500. Mm-hmm. So it's converged to fairly close to the S&P 500 in this uh, last time period. So at this point, you're going to say he's as big as he can get and continue to outperform? Yes, but Berkshire still has some advantages when you comp- let's suppose it does exactly the same as an index fund going forward, mm-hmm. which uh, may not be a bad rough estimate. It doesn't pay dividends. 
Mm-hmm. So you don't pay any taxes until you sell your stock. Right. When you sell your stock, if you hold it more than a year, you'll be paying long-term capital gain, which is less than you'd pay if you were a trader mm-hmm. and uh, generating short-term gains. Or, um, And as far as the dividends go, the company that uh, – well, I'm not sure where the tax, taxation is going to be on dividends now – or by the time this broadcasts, who even knows yeah, who what it will be. But uh, what, what is long-term capital gains, 15% versus 30% or, or higher? I don't know. I've, I've lost track. Yeah. It, it keeps, it keeps But it's here. considerably lower long-term yeah. than, than short-term. I don't plan to pay any for a while, so I'm not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever tempted to sell? Did you ever look at this and saying, or do you just not pay attention to it? Uh, I don't pay a whole lot of attention. I, to me, it's a buy and hold situation. Mm-hmm. And if I do sell, I'm going to have to pay all these taxes because I have a low basis. A very low basis. And so I get, I get punished for selling. Well, that's reason to hold on to it. I'm sure, I'm sure Warren appreciates that sort of uh, loyalty amongst its <laughs> stockholders. Um, on, on a related note, you were uh, at, at Citadel, Ken Griffin's. You were his first limited partner. What what did you see in Ken Griffin that made you say, this guy is onto something interesting. He's he's clearly uh, of a mathematical bend. I'm willing to give him money and see what he can do with it. Well, the guy who discovered Ken Griffin is a fellow named Frank Meyer, mm-hmm. who uh, was a friend of mine and who I got acquainted with in the early days of Princeton Newport Partners because he was he was representing some investors who wanted to get in to Princeton Newport Partners. So anyhow, when Princeton Newport Partners closed down in uh, um, 1988, 89, uh, Frank had just discovered this um, Harvard student who was trading out of his dorm. And what Ken Griffin was doing was trading derivatives, uh, convertibles, warrants, options, and so on, pretty much in the style that I've been trading them. And so Frank decided to set him up in business. Mm-hmm. So he was his mentor, guru, uh, business organizer. Ken was a young guy then, 20 or 21. Uh-huh. So smart, but uh, still new to all this. And since I was shutting down Princeton Newport, it was natural for me to talk with Frank and Ken and explain to them what I did and how I did it and basically give them my business roadmap. Mm-hmm. And they initially followed that, and then, of course, it evolved into its own uh, great thing. And uh, that Citadel is, is is phenomenal success story. Are you still an investor in Citadel? I am. So you are really a buy-and-hold investor. You look at things over the long haul. Yes. That's fascinating. Let's talk about, start with a quote of yours. Any edge in the market is limited, small, temporary, and quickly captured by the smartest or best-informed investors. Still true today? I'd modify that a little bit. Uh, I think that that's true of most of the edges. Mm -hmm. Some of the small edges have fairly large scope to them. Uh, I'll give you one simple example. There's something called tax loss harvesting, Mm -hmm. and that's a politically created edge. You could, for instance, set up a thing like an index fund, a thing that tracks an index fund, and at the end of the year, sell your losers and take the tax loss. Mm-hmm. And use the money to buy new stocks that would keep your 
collection of stocks tracking the index fairly well, and just keep doing that. You could sell one S&P index and buy a different S&P index. Well, even no, that's, you can't do that because... Can't be a wash. has yeah. to be something slightly has different. Has to be different. You, you could take, let's say, 100 of the stocks in the S&P index and uh-huh. buy them on day one. You could let it run for a year minus a day. Look at the losers, sell them, take the tax loss. Use the money to replace those losers with some of the stocks you didn't already hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have 400 stocks you haven't bought, you have 100 that you did have, so you move into some of the 400, and then you let it run for another year, and you do it again and again. So you keep taking losses and collecting money from the government. And and that's an edge that persists? Well, it's a politically created edge. Got it, because so, of the tax code. Yes, because of the tax code. So 1969 was a famously tough year for hedge funds. Carol Loomis wrote a big article about it in, in Fortune, and, and she ultimately ended up being um, a, a really interesting and important journalist. But in, in 1969, your hedge fund was just launching or about to launch? We launched in November of 1969. And the, the year that's so terrible. Yes. And there, was a, there, were, there were articles in Fortune and maybe Forbes, I don't remember uh, which now, which listed 20-some-odd of the largest hedge funds, and they're all losing and going out of business, mm-hmm. except for Buffett Partners Limited, which is going out of business for lack of opportunity. And uh, I think that uh, Steinhardt hung in there. He was up maybe 5%. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a disaster. So we, we started in the middle of a, a bloodbath. And, and how did you do? How was that first year in, in business as a hedge fund? Well, we were wondering what was going to happen. So the first two months, the market was down 4 or 5%, and we were up 4%. So that was, a, that was a good start. I made as much money then as I was making at the university just in the first two months. <laughs> so that's a good sign. Yes. Then the next year, uh, we were up again, and the market was down. And so we opened up a big gap on the market fairly early, and that continued. 1973, the S&P falls 15%. You're up 7%. In 1974, the S&P 500 falls 27%. You're up 9%. At, at what point do people start knocking on your door saying, hey, I have some money for you to manage for us? We had a, a steady waiting list, and we started out with, I think, a $50,000 minimum, mm-hmm. and it, it rapidly rose. Um, it, eventually, it was $10 million, and then finally, we just couldn't take any more investors. Mm-hmm. So it, it grew over the years from an initial $1.4 million to uh, about $270 million under management. And, and you understood all the math behind this. You understood the probabilistic edge you had. But were you ever surprised by, hey, this is really working out better than we imagined? Uh, that's an interesting question. When I sat down with uh, my then principal partner, a fellow named Jay Regan, back in 69, I... I uh, estimated what was going to happen. And I said, I think that by 1975, with the way we're going to grow and the fees we're going to have, we'll each be worth a million dollars. And you actually hit that number right on time. That's pretty much, yeah. So in 1975, I I sent him a copy of what I'd written, uh, what I'd already sent him in 1969, just as a little reminder. Mm -hmm. And at, at at what point did it sort of, did, or I should ask the question, did it ever scale to a point where you said, gee, this has really gone far beyond what I was expecting. I don't think so. Um, 
one of the things I learned at the casino table was that scaling is a very interesting psychological thing. When I first started playing blackjack on my first big trip, I went with a couple of uh, uh, multimillionaires who wanted to bankroll me for $100,000. I said, no, I don't know how to handle money. I'm going to be, uh, if anything goes wrong, uh, you're not going to like this. You're not going to like it in spades. So uh, let's only go with 10000 And the first eight hours I sat down there betting $1 when it wasn't favorable and $10 when it was favorable. And they just about went out of their skulls with this uh, penny-ante betting. Right. But then I got used to it after eight hours. So then I went to $2 uh, small bets, $20 big bets. And that lasted a couple hours. And then I got used to that. And then I went to uh, 5 to 50, uh, 25 to 300, and then 50 to 500. And 500 was the top bet mm-hmm. that they would allow at that point. So what I found was you could scale up. And when you get used to scaling, you do the same things, same kind of thinking that you did at the small scale uh, on bigger and bigger scales. So that that stayed with me uh, all the way up. It's just a process getting used to the larger numbers. But that's a physical and a psychological adjustment where when you start out at 1 in 10, $500 sounds like a lot of money, but you have to stair-step your way up until you're comfortable. Yes. Was it was it the same with the hedge fund? Yes. Starting out relatively small and at a certain point— and the biggest you got in terms of assets under management was? We had about a billion long and about a billion short, mm-hmm. but we had about $270 million behind that. Mm-hmm. I, I, will, I will say this, too. Uh, Bill Gross, who used to be here next door at PIMCO. Literally, I'm looking out the window at the PIMCO Tower yes. right next to yours. So he, he got his start playing blackjack, too, as you'll mm-hmm. read about in the book. And so he took $200, like the book uh, Beat the Dealer said he would, went out, slaved away for four months, turned it into 10000 like it said he would. And then when he went to PIMCO, he was very used to scaling up. And there came a point when PIMCO had just under $2 trillion under management. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of scaling up. From, from literally a very small division that was running, was it Pacific Life? Or we, they were running the money of a local insurance company and decided to set it out as a as a separate entity. Yeah, well, the way all this happened was uh, after reading uh, Beat the Dealer, Bill read uh, Beat the Market. And so he decided to write his thesis in convertible bonds at UCLA. And then it was 1971, he was looking for a job. And his mom said, oh, they're looking for people over at Pacific Mutual Life. Mm-hmm. So he went over and they said, oh, we don't need any bond guys here. He said, well, I wrote my thesis in convertible bonds. They said, oh, we don't have one of those. <laughs> so that's how he got hired. Yeah. And literally, literally, Pacific Life is not that far from here either. It's right up the, uh, right up the road. That uh, thing I call the mushroom building. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so funny. So a couple of really fascinating things that took place with, with you and, um, and the hedge funds. First, not only did you never have a losing year, you never had a losing quarter. That's a remarkable run. How is that consistency possible? Well, I was a, a child of the Depression, mm-hmm. so I'm uh, highly risk-averse. Okay. So I decided that I wasn't going to lose money, and that's what I liked about hedging. And, and by its nature, you try and put positions on that, even if it goes against you, the downside is is limited due to the hedge. Yes, and I put a lot of positions on. Uh, so I was diversified over hedges. I, I kept track of how the hedges did for uh, one period in the uh, earlier mid-70s. I kept track of 200 of them. Mm-hmm. And about 180 of them were winners. Uh, 
about 10 of them were pretty close to pushes, and about 10 of them were losers. And the winners were bigger than the losers uh, in, uh, on average. So that, that's how stable and solid these hedges were. So with a diversified portfolio of hedges, it was all, almost inevitable we'd come out ahead. Every month, we only had three down months, and those were less than 1%. Uh, so we we could call those a push. Let let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about um, Black Shoals. So both with the warrants and with the trading options against the common stock, you created a, your own pricing model to figure out when the either the warrant or the option was overpriced or underpriced relative to the underlying security, which essentially was the the Black Shoals. Option pricing. You invented Black Shoals option pricing before Black Shoals. How does that come about? Uh, the way that happened was uh, there was a, a great book, one of the first quantitative finance books called The Random Character of uh, Stock Market Prices. Uh, it came out kind of came out of MIT, uh, Paul Kutner, 1964, mm-hmm. uh, revised, uh, updated 1965. And I happened to read that book. And they had some warrant models in the book. And the warrant models had two parameters that nobody knew what to do with. Uh, Nobel Prize winner, future Nobel Prize winner Paul Samuelson didn't know what to do with these uh, parameters, mm-hmm. nor did anybody else. And the two parameters were the unknown rate of growth of the stock and the proper discount rate for the uncertain payoff from the warrant or option. Mm-hmm. And so I understood that model. I would actually worked it out myself, and then I saw that it was already in the book, so I, I did something everybody already knew. And I thought about it for a while, and then I said, you know, I'm doing hedges that are essentially risk-neutral. And so is there a world in which those parameters could be chosen? Yes, if the world's risk-neutral, then I choose the riskless rate for those parameters. Mm-hmm. So I stuck the riskless rate in, and lo and behold, magic, wonderful formula. Tried the formula out all kinds of different ways, uh, logically to see if it did what it was supposed to, and it did. So now I had a formula for valuing options, which was the future Black-Scholes formula. This was 1967. Black, by the way, told me uh, later on when we had conversations that they had figured this thing out in 69, but they were rejected for publication uh, a number of times, and it was only when they got some help, I think from Samuelson, mm-hmm. that they were able to get their article in print. They got the first one in print in 1972. Now, you've been using this model for four or five years at that point? Yeah. And what, I, w- what I, was I, your... Well, I was entirely unaware of the world of academic finance, because I was just doing all this stuff on my own myself, mm-hmm. like I was used to doing when I was a kid, uh, learning science by myself. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, the CBOE, Chicago Board Options Exchange, decided to create listed options, which revolutionized the whole uh, over-the-counter options and warrant market. So in other words, these are trading on an exchange. You don't have to go through a specific. Right. So that made the cost much more more reasonable, and it also allowed you to uh, trade a, a much broader set of uh, vehicles. That, that, that was the plan. It was, there was um, supposed to happen in... I think April of 1973. So I had been operating my hedge fund for already uh, almost four years, and I had been trading options and warrants using the Black-Scholes formula, among other things, mm-hmm. and also 
value. Well, you were really trading using the Ed Thorpe formula because yes. Black-Scholes didn't exist no. yet. I, I, and I didn't, as far as I knew, there were, were no such people as Black and Scholes. Right. <laughs> so then I was sitting there about a month before it opened, and I get a, a brown envelope with a mimeographed article in it and a letter from a fellow named Fisher Black, who I said, I, as I said, I'd never heard of. And he was saying, uh, uh, I'm an admirer of your work, and we took the idea from Beat the Market, the hedging idea, and used dynamic hedging, and we've derived this formula. And so I started reading the paper, and I said, gee, this looks a lot like my formula. And so I programmed it on my little Hewlett-Packard computer, which drew graphs. Mm -hmm. And I drew the curves, and they were the same curves I've been drawing. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, it is the same formula. Let's, let's look at it algebraically. So I, I saw that the algebra tr translated in the formula. They were the same thing. And I realized more. Uh, I actually had a triple of formulas, and not just one. And the triple um, took care of two cases that were then important in the market. Uh, your short warrants and long stock, and you can't get the short sale proceeds used. The broker pockets it and uses it to pay his own uh, debit balances down. Mm -hmm. And the other formula, uh, that was a second formula. The third formula was the reverse, your short stock and long warrants, and deprived of the short sale proceeds. Black and Scholes assumed uh, the main formula that uh, you got the use of the short sale proceeds, which you did, or you would, when you traded on the exchange. Mm -hmm. But before the CBOE, uh, people did not get the benefit of using the short sale proceeds. So you needed three formulas. And so I had them all, and uh, there, theirs was the middle of the three. And there was something else about the formula I had, which was it used a method that was different. Uh -huh. It used something from basically what's now high school calculus, just integration. Mm -hmm. and. That meant that my formula could be applied to probability distributions that were different than the log-normal distribution, which was the one that underlied the Black-Scholes formula. So it was a more general attack on problems. So you, you get the package from, from Black. You see that your secret sauce is now out in the public, even though it's not quite as comprehensive or robust as your version of it. Do you say to yourself... Oh, a uh, cat's out of the bag, and this is no longer going to be a moneymaker for I, us. I figure I don't have the competitive edge that I thought I had. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the academic and finance world was fairly slow-moving, as was uh, the collection of market makers. So when the CBO, CBOE opened on day one, we were down there with our traders and our formulas and our charts, and it was, uh, it was wonderful. Uh, there was no competition. Really? Now, you wanted to bring down um, small calculators and handheld devices, and they really gave you a lot of grief about that. Well, it was, we, it, what we wanted to do was bring down uh, handheld calculators so we could just punch out the formula values right on the floor. But they wouldn't let us do it because it was unfair to the uh, old guard. The, the old guard didn't have this advantage. Mm -hmm. And we asked if we could use walkie-talkies, and they said, no, we couldn't do that either. So what we, was, we resorted to doing was printing enormous tables that had all the possibilities in them. Mm -hmm. And these tables were on Z-fold paper, 11 by 17. They were probably, oh, three inches thick because they covered uh, lots of cases and prices and options. And, and that had to be updated <coughs> well, daily, correct? We ran 
we ran printers four or five hours every night mm-hmm. and uh, air freighted our tables to our traders uh, initially on the CBOE and then on the uh, MX, the Pacific, and uh, Philadelphia exchanges. So it's a day or so behind, but close enough that it was an advantage to them. Well, we covered a, a wide enough range of prices so that we caught most of the moves for a week or so. And so the tables were usually good for a week. And that gave you guys a, stati- a statistical edge in, in the actual all trade. Our tables had, all our traders had to do was take the tables down to the post, flip, and decide uh, what trades they wanted to make. And they, what, what did the CBOE have to say about that? They, they, uh, they, they let us do that. <laughs> they, uh, they didn't recognize the advantage it was giving you? I think they did. The Wall Street Journal had an article about it in uh, 1974. Uh, it's a front-page article. Uh, and what was the net result after the article? Did the any more pushback or? I think it encouraged people to try to come up to speed. Mm-hmm. So, so even after Black Shoals is out, even after all of the mathematical advantages that you had identified were well known, you're still running a big advantage over everybody else. Yes. And the fund continues to perform very well for the next how many years? Well, we ran from uh, late 1969 through the end of 1988, and we, we did fine through the whole period. In fact, we got higher rates of return in the later period than we did in the lower. So what made you decide to finally shut that fund, fund down? Uh, a fellow named Rudy Giuliani made me decide to shut it down. So, so let's talk about that, because Giuliani and others opened an, investi- an investigation. You, well, I'm going to cut to the end. You did nothing wrong. You're completely exonerated. However... This is a giant pain in the neck, isn't it? Well, what happened was um, Rudy Giuliani, uh, in my opinion, decided that his career would be advanced greatly if, while he was um, head of the Southern District uh, in New York. U.S. Attorney's Office. U.S. Attorney's Mm -hmm. Office, that if he prosecuted insider trading, it would be a great benefit to his future, which it was. Mm -hmm. And so... He found various targets. One of them was uh, Michael Milken, mm-hmm. who was everybody's target because Michael Milken was on, on horsing the old guard by funding uh, junk bond people who were taking over companies and kicking the old guys out. Mm-hmm. So his his head had to roll, and fortunately for the people who wanted to kick him out, they were able to find some things to get him with. And Robert Freeman of Goldman Sachs was another guy that they were after. I don't recall what the reason was. But it turned out my partner, Jay Regan, was his roommate at Dartmouth, oh, and really? they were pals. And also, we did a fair amount of trading with uh, uh, Michael Milken and uh, his company. So there was a big raid of our offices. The idea was to get uh, Jay Regan to uh, say something that would help convict uh, uh, Freeman and uh, Milken. Well, uh, what happened was uh, they never got anything from Jay Regan or any, uh, any of the other people in Princeton. But they're able to make enough of a case so that it dragged through the courts for like two and a half years. Meanwhile, Giuliani split and went on to other things. And uh, there was an initial trial which uh, and conviction which was thrown out of five people in the Princeton office. Mm-hmm. And then the government elected not to retry. And when all the smoke cleared, uh, nobody paid any money, nobody did any time, but they spent 10 or $15 million on legal fees. So is it fair to say that you're not a big fan of Rudy Giuliani? I'm not. And, uh, you, should, you should know that most New Yorkers share your opinion. <laughs> and I'm not being political when I say that. People forget. I'm gonna, let me digress. People forget 
right before September 11th, he was cheating on his wife. It was an, about an ugly divorce. His political career had, you know, had plummeted. 9-11 resurrected his career. If it wasn't for that, and, you know, the president wasn't very visible then, and Rudy stepped into the void, and that basically really gave him a whole second, uh, a, a second run on a political career. But I agree with you. A, a lot of New Yorkers, you, you ask in New York, well, you know, they got the bums off this, the— the squeegee guys were gone, and there's no begging in the subway. But that second term, he just, whatever credibility and goodwill he had accumulated, he completely uh, frittered away. So that leads to an interesting quote of yours um, about money and success. And I, I thought this was fascinating. Quote, success on Wall Street was getting the most money. Success for us was having the best life. That is a fairly philosophical perspective that is often missing, at least on the East Coast or in New York. T tell us a little bit about that philosophy. Well, what I learned over the decades was that it's, it's how you live your life that matters and the people that you spend your time with that matters. Mm -hmm. And the stuff you pile up doesn't really matter very much. I mean, it... Having money helps. It makes living easier, pleasanter. You have more fun, better medical care, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And you know, your kids and your grandkids, you can help take care of them and make uh, sure things are fine. But I don't need to own an island in Hawaii. I don't need to have villas all over. I don't need to have private jets. And you know, a lot of other people feel the same way. I mean, they'll take Warren Buffett, for instance. He doesn't spend that much money when you consider he is one of the two or three richest guys in the world mm -hmm. and has been for the longest time. Well, what makes him happy is doing his job. He, he yeah. tap dances to work. Exactly. Not a lot of people get to do that. Yeah. And he realizes the same thing, as he said. It's, it's kind of the people you love and the people who love you that matter the most. To say the least. By the way, have you seen the HBO documentary on Buffett? I have not. It, it's quite charming. He's, 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 I, I know a lot of people think his shtick is, oh, he's just being that down-home guy. But he it comes across as very genuine, yep. and he seems like a real person. Yes. If you get a chance, it's I think it's about an hour. It's it's great. I'll a, look for it. Although you you know him personally, so yeah. maybe you'll you'll see it differently. But I should say I knew him personally. I haven't mm -hmm. seen him for a long time. But so um, let let's keep talking about Princeton Newport Partners. That's a better name than Convertible Hedge Associates. I agree with you. Um, but that's why that's why we changed it. So so that was simply oh this is a little uh, uh, one partners in Princeton, the other partners exactly. in Newport Beach, and and that's a fair enough name. So when you first started it, who were some of the early investors? Let's see. There was uh, Bob Evans, mm -hmm. uh, who later became head of Paramount Studios, was married to Ellie McGraw, and sure. so forth. And and put out a number of really seminal movies, if if memory serves. Yes. Um, anybody else of of note? I think there was Charles Langvin of the Ritz. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember much about him. Uh, most of these partners were pretty quiet. We just kept making money, so they didn't bother us. That that those are the best types of yeah. partners, especially if you keep making them money. Yeah. Um, so you eventually decide to close um, Princeton Newport Partners down after the Giuliani. Yeah, it, it was too it was too hard to operate in that atmosphere, and. It was too difficult to keep reassuring limited partners that, first of all, he threatened the partnership with Rico, so they had the fear that through some quirk or other, their assets might get confiscated mm -hmm. for unknown lengths of time. 
and we knew that there was no risk of them losing, but also it was just too harrowing. And I said to myself, I don't need more money anyhow. <laughs> so there's a famous quote, and I know I'm mangling this, but it's there, there are a few things more dangerous than an overzealous prosecutor run amok. <laughs> and, and I think that describes the circumstances yeah. uh, with Rudy way back when. You didn't need the money, but at a certain point you decide to start PNP. What motivated you to get back into hedge fund game? Oh, uh, it was, uh, let's see, Richline Partners that I started. Mm-hmm. And what happened was I took a break from uh, 1989 to 1992. And then one of my uh, previous partners, who is now working for a, a very large pension profit-sharing plan, said, you know, statistical arbitrage, which we've been running, and which I might say, I, as far as I know, we were the first discoverers of back in 1980, mm-hmm. statistical arbitrage is doing really well. We'd like you to get back in this game. So I said, well, I'll take a look. And I said, oh, it is doing quite well. Sure, we'll, we'll run some money for you. And it was easy to do. I could do it with uh, about three full-time equivalents as opposed to uh, a staff of 80, which I was using for Princeton Newport Partners. And, and I didn't get the sense you were a big fan of managing a large staff. That's a lot of work. Uh, it turns uh, What I learned was if you manage five people, mm-hmm. then you're spending maybe a third or half your time managing. And then you've got to find somebody. If you have five more people, you've got to have somebody to help manage them. And it, it sort of grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. You get this big pyramid, and you keep getting farther and farther removed from what's really happening. Right. So so PNP, you're doing statistical arbitrage? Uh, actually, uh, Richline Partners were doing Richline Partners. Yeah. And, and, and what was the performance numbers like for Richline? We did about 20% a year with a little more variability than uh, PNP. I don't, we didn't make money every month, but we made money nearly every month. Mm-hmm. And it was somewhat event-driven because the arbitrage opportunities would come along through M&A or through what? What was the underlying? The biggest, the biggest event that um, we experienced was in 1998 mm-hmm. with the long-term capital management collapse. Sure. It turned out that lots of people who were competitors now began to bail out. And so that caused a, a four or five-day dip. We had the first loss that we'd had of, of any significance. It was just 3 or 4%. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a, sh- a shocker, but those <laughs> uh, those days passed, and then we had the the greatest run we've ever had. We think we made uh, like forty seven percent in six months. Not too shabby. Yeah. And then the another hedge fund, PNP, um, in the twelve months ending August nineteen ninety nine, uh, the limited partners, I guess this is net of fees, were up over seventy two percent from a market-neutral portfolio that used less than two-to-one leverage. That's that's Ridgeline Partners. Oh, so why do I keep calling this PNP? I'm not sure. Uh, PNP, so, PNP ended in 1988-89, so it might be... Uh, oh, so that's the old one, and then Ridgeline took over. Yeah. So uh, back to Ridgeline in 99, you're up 72% from market-neutral, very little leverage. Uh, how did this come about, and why would you ever want to shut that down? Well, the reason we had that glorious run was because uh, our competitors went away, mm-hmm. and as they bailed out, they created opportunity. Okay. And they disrupt the marketplace as they exit, and that creates yes. arbitrage opportunities. And they also don't control the excursions from fair value as much. Mm-hmm. So the excursions got bigger. And so more, more profits to be had. How much longer did you keep Ridgeline open after 99? We 
uh, went from actually 1992 to 2002. Mm-hmm. And then I shut down, the, uh, not because we were doing badly, but because we were doing just so-so, like maybe 10% a year. So, and the opportunities had, had just gone away. Is that, is that basically? I think that there was more competition. Mm-hmm. And so the deviations from fair value that we were exploiting weren't as big. And at that point, uh, I said to myself, you know, why am I doing this? Uh, I'd, I'd rather just manage my own money in a more passive way and enjoy life. So let's talk a little bit about that. Passive investing has caught on a great deal. Uh, it's a long time coming. It's finally, um, finally made its way to a number of people. BlackRock is one of the big um, underwriters of ETFs and passive investing. Uh, not exclusively, but they're up to $5 trillion. Vanguard is probably best known as the inventor of uh, the passive index, or at least the first company that was created to roll out a passive index that people can invest in. They're now up to $4 trillion. Uh, have, have mom and pop investors finally figured out that for them, a passive investment is better than stock picking or market timing? Some of them have. So you make a convincing argument that if you cannot demonstrate your edge, your advantage over a passive uh, index, then then you shouldn't be doing anything but a, a passive index. Mm-hmm. Do, to, it seems perfectly logical and rational to me. Do you get pushback from people about that? No. What I get is probably a lack of alertness when <laughs> <laughs> discussing it. So I have to, that's going to, that leads me to a question I didn't ask before, but I have to. You, you seem incredibly grounded and a, a regular low-key sort of guy. You took the California test of, of um, mental maturity. It's an IQ test as a kid. You had the highest score they had ever seen. How, how do you manage to keep... At, at my high school. At your high... Oh, at, at your high school. Not but in the world. <laughs> not in the world. Oh, okay. So that makes the... I'm going to... That makes the question easy. How do you keep your ego in check? But still, you've... All joking aside, you invent card counting. You invent statistical arbitrage. You invent um, uh, paired trading. Uh, go down the list of things that you did that are really unique in the world of finance... As an investor, how do you manage to keep your ego in check? All you have to do is look at all the other things that people do. There's so many great things that people are doing all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you meet any individual, the person sitting next to you on a bus or a plane or whatever, that person will be able to do things or know things that you can't know or can't do. Maybe they can sing better. Maybe they know a language you don't know. Uh, Maybe they know how to... uh, um, fix a car there's just mm-hmm. you know one thing after another identify the car has been been rigged against you yes. and and you think that's basically uh, uh helps you keep your ego in check helps anybody keep their ego in check I, I find it hard to understand why so many people have such big egos okay that's that's a fair enough thing there they're especially those people who ha- haven't created a body of accomplishments i i, I kind of think that maybe their big ego is a substitute for uh, feeling like they're falling short here and there. A little overcompensation. Yes. So that's fair enough. Um, in in the book, Chapter 25, you say beat most investors by indexing. And Chapter 26, can you beat the market? Should you try? Um, when should somebody try to beat the market? Well, my 
simplified view it goes something like this. The, roughly the three kinds of investors. Mm-hmm. There are guys who don't want to really do any work. They just want to have their money grow. Those people should be thinking about indexing. Makes perfect sense. Then there are people who really are interested in the market, and it's kind of fun for them. Those people, if they want to learn more, should go out and have their go at trying to make some money. But they shouldn't use the bulk of their resources to do this. They should just Just a use, fun account. Yeah, exactly. And then if they find something that really works, then they can start putting more money into it. Uh, they'll find that most of the time they haven't really found anything that really works. A and, little fooled by randomness? Yes, Is that what you're suggesting? Exactly. And then there's a third group, which are the professional people, some of whom actually get an edge. Mm-hmm. Most of whom don't, but some of whom do. And those people get a start somehow in the market, just like I got a start with uh, an options formula. Mm-hmm. And so I have an edge. I get in. I build an organization which is small, and it gradually grows. It gets more and more skills. It gets into more and more kinds of investing. So you basically uh, get over the hurdle and get yourself established. If you can do that uh, as a professional, then you're kind of on your way to collecting what people call alpha, excess return. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there's the fourth group, which I I don't have much interest in, and those are the ones who are simply asset gatherers, Mm -hmm. and they're they're in there to collect fees and get rich. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's nothing really very interesting in what they do. That's a you you've described a huge part of what takes place in finance. Yes, it's so most of it. People who are trying and not getting anywhere. People who have just given up and said, "I'm going to go passive," and people who are are don't have an especial advantage, but they're just accumulating assets yeah. and and managing them managing them in some better or worse way. Referring to indexes and passive investing. People are now describing, oh, this has gotten too large. It's a bubble. It's distorting price discovery. Passive indexes are going to cause the next crash. What, what do you make of that? Well, suppose that half of all the listed equities in the United States were in index funds. Then the other half would not be. The half that's not be, that would not be, is a lot bigger than the market was 10 or 20 years ago. Uh-huh. So I don't see that putting half of the um, stocks into index funds is going to cause any problem, except there's one thing. There's the question of the float in different mm-hmm. companies. Uh, some companies are more closely held than others. So you might have a company in which 70% is closely held and it never trades, and only 30% is up for trading. Mm-hmm. So I believe that the uh, index funds, the S&P 500 for uh, Vanguard, anyhow, has changed so that they use a proportion of the float rather than a proportion of the total market cap. Mm-hmm. And they've compared how that tracks with uh, if they had been able to uh, use the proportion of total market cap rather than proportion of, of the float. And the tracking has been extremely close so far. So, so far, no problem. I think um, it was Andrew Lowe at MIT said you could get down to 90% passive, 10% active. That's enough for price discovery as long as there's sufficient liquidity. So there could theoretically be a ways to go if he's right. Sure. Oh, and the case there is, uh, suppose that you had 90% in index funds, mm-hmm. uh, forgetting about the float issue, which which might cause some divergence. Uh, well, 10% of the current market is probably a good deal larger than the market was 50 years ago. Sure. So you still have price discovery, yes. even, even at that Here's another quote of yours that I really like. Whether or not you try to beat the market, you can do better by properly managing your wealth. Explain that. Where was that quote? Let's take a look. I don't know. 
It was here on my page. Oh, okay. I, uh, I think it's from this book, and it's it's in the context of of why more people. It's either twenty five or chapter twenty six about why more people should be doing passive. Whether or not you beat the market, you could still do better. You know what? Let's see if oh, I can uh, find that. I'll tell you what I think it is. <clears throat> I think it has to do with the fact that there are what Buffett calls uh, fee collectors or toll takers. Mm -hmm. And the upshot is that when you think about uh, fees collected by advisors or managers and also the losses due to active trading, uh, both market impact and commissions, mm -hmm. you, it adds up to roughly a couple percent a year drain on assets. So if you could make, let's say, 10% a year in a stock index fund long term, anything could happen in the short term, then maybe you're making 8% a year before taxes if you're paying all these fees and tolls. Mm -hmm. So just shifting to uh, passive investing gets you an extra 2% for basically no work. And compound that over 40 years, and, and that really adds up. Yeah, but using the... Um, Rule 72, for instance, uh, roughly 36 years, actually 35 is uh, closer because the rule varies from 72 depending on what the interest rate is. Mm -hmm. uh, using the rule of uh, 72, in a little less than 36 years, you have twice as much money if you invest this way than if you pay the 2% toll. So it makes a big difference. We have been speaking to Edward Thorpe, a professional investor, trader, gambler, mathematician. Uh, if you want to find out more about the works uh, of Ed Thorpe, you can read his most recent book, A Man for All Markets. Beat the Dealer, Beat the Markets are both classic books. You may have to hunt around to find, find them. Um, if anybody wants to find anything else you've written, these are really the main places to look. Is there? They can go on my website, too. What, what is the website? It's uh, edwardothorpe.com. EdwardOthorpe.com. Oh, it also has another a second website links to it, uh, amanforallmarkets.com. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things investing. Check out my daily column on Bloomberg at BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved. And the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ed, for doing this. I I'm really enjoying this conversation, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, you've led a fascinating life. You've also led a well-lived life, which are some of the things you talk about in the book. It's not about money. It's not about accumulating toys. It's not about just piling up junk. It's spending time in a way that matters. 
As you know, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read the book. I know. So, so let's let's talk a little bit about some of um, uh, my favorite questions. I ask these of all my guests, and we often find some interesting things. Uh, what do you think is the most interesting or important thing that people don't know about your background? I would say that I'm consistently rational over a very wide range of things. Mm -hmm. And when you meet a lot of people who are, uh, I would call, locally rational. That is, they, they do things very sensibly and logically in some areas. Mm -hmm. And then there's a total breakdown in some other areas where they act uh, very strange and don't use uh, good sense. So in other words, the, the logical part of their brain only limited to certain subjects. Yes. Um, well, I hope we in all endeavor to be logic across, logical across everything, <laughs> but I think a lot of people um, uh, don't behave that way. Let, let's talk about some of your early mentors. Who are the people who really influenced you and helped you all along your career? Well, I was, uh, I was deprived in that way, mm -hmm. so I don't have much in that category. My father helped me a lot from ages three to five. Okay. That was enough to really get me started. How about colleagues you worked with? Who, who, who did you really enjoy working with at, at various schools? I think uh, the most fun I had was working with Claude Shannon at MIT because he was a very creative thinker. Mm -hmm. And we could just sit there and talk about the widest range of topics. And we kind of played off each other. And we, we thought alike about so many things. But we also had... Uh, different experiences and backgrounds, so it made a really good team. And you ended up creating, was it the wearable computer with him? Well, it turned out, yes, we were trying to beat roulette, mm -hmm. and so we built a computer to wear on the body that was hidden, and this computer had uh, switches to input information about the roulette wheel ball and mm -hmm. rotor as they were moving, and then it would make an immediate prediction as to what was going to happen. So, so you know the arrangement of numbers and colors on a roulette wheel, you're, you have a certain spin in one direction of the ball and the rotors in the other direction, and you basically were able to calculate, as long as I could get a timing fairly accurate when the ball is moving this way, we can have a pretty comfortable guess as to the cluster of outcomes? Yeah, basically, we were able to time the ball and the rotor so we know what speed they were both going at, mm -hmm. and the computer would know where they were at any time, and then it could forecast roughly where the ball was going to fall. And the there are a lot of uncertainties in the wheel that are uh, deliberate. The ball will bounce off little veins on the side. Mm -hmm. It'll spatter over the dividers between pockets. But it turned out the, predictor, the predicting was so strong that we got a 44% edge, which is... Uh, Huge. Yes. That's so gigantic, you can't believe it. So uh, you mentioned Warren Buffett. Any other investors influence the way you approached investing or... Was it pretty much all based on your own research and, and math? It was pretty much thinking for myself, mm -hmm. which was both good and bad. It was good because I thought of things that I wouldn't have thought of if I had been taught the formal academic way. It was mm -hmm. bad because I had to rediscover some things that I would have known easily had I taken uh, you know, formal training. So let's talk about books. This is one of the, the favorite questions of... Uh, of listeners, what are some of your favorite books, be they finance or non-finance, fiction or non-fiction? What do you what do you enjoy reading? What have you enjoyed reading? Well, that that's a very broad question. I, I probably have currently in my libraries, both here and at home, ten thousand books, mm -hmm. and I haven't read 
every page of every book, but I've read some pages in every book, and I've read some books in their entirety. Mm -hmm. And human knowledge is so vast that I can't just pick out a few books and say, these are the great books from all those thousands and thousands of books. And by the way, besides the 10,000, there are others that I've read that aren't in my library, many others. And then, so I, I would say that uh, I look at things kind of like Charlie Munker and his multiple mental models uh -huh. in which you focus on certain ideas in certain areas. Like, here's one from psychology. There's something called the Meyer-Briggs Personality Index. Sure. And uh, so... Uh, there are four four dimensions they tie people on. The first one's easy, extrovert, introvert. Mm -hmm. And so if there are four dimensions and there are two choices, then you have 16 pure types of people. Now, people aren't typically that simple. They don't fall into those categories. But you can get a surprising amount of information by estimating uh, what type a person is. Um, they're, they're sensing... Sensing versus feeling is another dimension. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a sensing person is very aware of everything that's going on around them. And uh, a feeling person is a highly emotional person and so forth. Anyhow, uh, it's an easy way to have a first-cut thought about people. And it teaches you that people are very different, but there's no good or no bad uh, in the various types. They're just different. Mm -hmm. And it helps you understand them. So that, that's a simple... Uh, mental model, uh, or there's anchoring in the stock market, something I learned to my pain very early. I bought a <laughs> stock at 40. It went down to 20. I d didn't want to let go until it came back to 40. Dear but, Lord, just let me get break-even. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 the losing cries of losing investors everywhere. Four years later, I get break-even. I get out. But, of course, uh, there's inflation, so I haven't really gotten out even. And I've deprived myself of investing the money somewhere else where it might have been done a lot better and so forth. So the, the price I bought at, 40, is a price uh, peculiar only to me. It has no relation to anything going on in the outside world. And so to be anchored to that price is uh, uh, idiocy. And, and, and yet people do it all the time. Yes. Because their, their subjective perspective takes over from a, a more global perspective. So you have 10,000 books. I'm looking at a handful of books over here. Nothing really leaps out as the, these aren't necessarily these are the five seminal books you have to read. But what books did you find interesting? Or, or let me make it more recent. What's the last book you read that you really enjoyed? Mm, there are five or six struggling. Uh, okay. Well, one of them I, I enjoyed uh, quite a bit was uh, a well-known one, Philip Tetlock's uh, sure. uh, Super Forecasters. Mm-hmm. So, By the way, previous guest on the show and absolutely a delightful human being. Yes. In fact, I was at a conference uh, a few years ago that he and I both spoke at, so uh, I kind of got to know a little bit more about his thoughts and ideas there. But yeah, a very interesting piece of work, uh, well worth knowing. Mm -hmm. Another one was uh, The Accidental, Accidental Superpower by a guy named uh, Peter Zihan, mm -hmm. and he's a uh, Stratfor type. By the way, uh, I, I might say that if I read a book and I find it interesting, it doesn't mean that I'm endorsing that book 100%. Right. It's just that I'm finding things 
that are worth thinking about in right. that book. And I may you may not. come out with a different conclusion, but he's provoking a thought process it, exactly and making right. you think about an issue. Hey, I hadn't really considered this quite in this context. That's fascinating. Yes, yeah, so I'd rather read a book that doesn't just reinforce opinions I already hold. I want a book that's going to add something that I don't know. That's mm-hmm. information if it's new. Mm-hmm. If it's the same stuff over and over that I've already thought about, that's not information so anymore. So confirmation biases in how you select books. No. <laughs> All right, so that's two. Give us one more, and we'll let you off the hook with this. Okay, there's a one by uh, Paul Wilmot. It's called uh, The Money Formula, mm-hmm. and it's, it just, it's just out. And it's about how quants have uh, helped screw things up in the financial world. Screw things up. Well, yes. they, I, I don't know if that's the right phrase. They, they've certainly helped mix things up and change things, but I would argue for the better, and I think you are going to be in agreement with that. Well, uh, uh, Perhaps I put that too simplistically, but uh, uh, what I think uh, part of his thrust is that the sell side on Wall Street has taken quant products to use to market Mm -hmm. to people, and they haven't been discriminating about the products that they've marketed, collateralized mortgage obligations being a case in point. Well, any tool could be used for good or evil, exactly. to say the least. But, exactly. you know, it's, it's anything is only, a sausage is only as good as the meat that goes yeah. in. Well, you know, take coal. Coal's both good and evil. Mm-hmm. It pollutes, but it also keeps us warm and supplies us energy. It, it got us to the point where we can now start looking at less polluting yes. energy options. And, uh, you know, when we look at that transition, that's taking place not just with coal and natural gas, but quantitative is replacing the old qualitative for a reason, because it's demonstrably superior in so many ways. I think that's a, a, a fair statement. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you you started in this industry, in the finance industry, 40-plus years ago. Um, what, it, what do you think is the most significant change that's taken place over that time? There's more than one. Um, one of the big ones has been the computerization and the quantification of investing. That's really two big ones. Yes. Right? So technology is everywhere, and applying it mathematically seems to be the the dominant thing. What else? The second has been the aggregation of money management into huge firms Mm -hmm. that are offering what seem to be choices but are largely just plain vanilla in different packages. Mm-hmm. Is that is that still going on, or uh, is that now getting bigger and bigger? I think that the big firms are getting relatively bigger. Uh, a thing I read about hedge funds recently on uh, a site by a guy named Barry Ritzel, I think oh. it was. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of him. <laughs> was that the number of new hedge funds is smaller than the number of hedge funds that are disappearing. Mm-hmm. but that the total assets under management for hedge funds is increasing. Over $3 trillion yeah. now. So, you know, Jim. Ch- I'm fond of repeating Jim Chanos's quote. He said when he started in hedge funds 30 years ago, there were a couple of hundred hedge funds. They all created alpha. Now there's almost 10,000 hedge funds, and those same 30 hedge funds are the alpha generators. And there is some truth to that. Uh, yes, there is. It, it is not a true Gaussian distribution. That's very much a fathead and a long tail. Um, and not not everybody who's running a hedge fund is capable of putting up the sort of numbers that you put up. Well, in the 90s, I could find hedge funds uh, when I didn't feel like uh, managing money of my own. I could find hedge funds that were making 
15 or 20 percent annualized. Mm -hmm. And then in the 2000s, they kept dying. The the numbers drop off a cliff, and uh, I want to say it's Simon Lack's book, um, yes. The Hedge Fund Mirage. Hedge Fund Mirage, yeah. He, he said in, in the book, the losses hedge funds suffered in 08, 09 had wiped out all of their previous yes. profits in total. It didn't wipe out managers' fees, but it wiped out all the yeah. all the profits. And other than those top, let's call it 500 hedge funds, it's certainly not 20 or 30 these days, the balance really don't seem to be generating any sort of alpha. So you have a skewed, when you look at the returns, they're so skewed, not by the big hedge funds, but by all the rest that are underperforming. Well, I think it's probably a fair statement to say that if all the money that had ever been put into hedge funds mm -hmm. had been put into index funds, the investors who did that would be far better off than they actually were. Renaissance Technologies accepting and a handful yes. of others, but that you, you, could, you could very well be right. Um, let's, uh, let's go to the next question. Tell us about a time you failed. And I know you wrote a few times in the book about things you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, back when I was in high school, I heard about a chemistry contest. It was the Southern California chemistry teachers contest. And I happened to love chemistry. And I was at a school where basically there weren't any academics. But I decided that I would study for this test because if I were able to win it, I could choose a scholarship to uh, a place I could not otherwise afford to go, like mm -hmm. Caltech or UC Berkeley or whatever. So I, I trained up for this test really hard, and the typical winning score was about 93%. Uh, basically, it was a couple of hundred of the best high school chemistry students from Southern California w would compete each year. And I, I competed as a 15-year-old, as a junior, against people who were basically seniors who were 17 and 18 years old. And I thought I was going to get 99% on the test mm -hmm. or higher. So the best score by far they'd ever seen. And I took old tests that my chemistry teacher had assembled over the years, and I was scoring that way on the old tests, one after another. I went into the test, and I just rolled through the exam. I got just about everything right. And then I came to the last part, which was a lot of calculating. And they allowed slide rules that year. Mm -hmm. And they didn't say they were necessary, only that you could bring one if you wanted to. It turned out the tests were designed so that only with a good slide rule could you complete that part of the test. Mm -hmm. I had a 10 cent slide rule I brought along was worthless. Uh -huh. It was so inaccurate that there was no chance of even bothering. So I did what I could by hand. And I completed, I think, 873 points on the test. I got 869 right, and but uh, I was just crushed by the fact that I didn't have a good slide rule, that I hadn't prepared and covered that base properly. So that, that taught me that one of the things you want to do is look at things redundantly when you can mm -hmm. and try to cover all, all the downside possibilities that might occur and eliminate them. So that worked in very well later when I uh, played in the casinos and when I uh, ran hedge fund. Did you end up taking the test again when you were a senior? Um, that's a good, interesting question. I asked them if I could, and they said, no, you can only take it once. So I thought about that, and I found that there was a, physic, a physics test that was also given by, it was analogous to the chemistry test. It was given by the physics teachers, and another couple of hundred of the best students in Southern California took that. So I crammed for that test. Uh, I only 
heard about it uh, a short time before. And I wasn't able to finish all the studying that I wanted to do, but I was able to win that one. Oh, really? Yeah. So we and you took that. Um, so that's like a tuition scholarship, and you. I, I had a choice of Caltech or Berkeley. I found out I wanted to go to Caltech, but I couldn't because I didn't have the money to live near Pasadena. Mm-hmm. So, so you, I went to Berkeley. And how did that work out? Well, it worked out just fine. I got a full scholarship, and uh, after a year at Berkeley, I changed to UCLA because I had more friends down there, and uh, I went through the UC system, and uh, everything went, was fine for me. You're physically fit. You seem to be in pretty good shape. Tell us what you do to stay physically fit, and what do you do to keep mentally fit? Well, physically, I've um, been a long distance. I had uh, had been a long distance runner for about. 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to run marathons and uh, halves and 10Ks and 5Ks. I'd run about 40 miles a week. Mm-hmm. And then I hurt my back uh, weightlifting, so now I j- just walk. When, when did you stop running? Around what you, How old were you? Uh, I stopped running when I was 68. Mm-hmm. Ran my last marathon in uh, New York in 1998. Mm-hmm. And oh, so that's 20 years ago. Yeah. But you're not 88. No. <laughs> I'm doing the math. You were 68. Well, 17 years ago. Seven, okay. And you do, you say, you do you still lift weights or? Yes. I go to the gym uh, with a trainer uh, twice a week. Mm-hmm. I walk about uh, 10 to 15 miles a week. Mm-hmm. And then I do some hiking in the hills. What do you do to, to keep mentally active? What, what do you enjoy? What, what keeps your focus these days? I like... I still like problems in finance, mm-hmm. so I take time out to work on some of them. I also like math problems and chess problems and so forth. Mm-hmm. Play word games, um, travel, read a lot, uh, talk to really interesting people. Okay. So I have a very smart family, and so they're very stimulating. That sounds but like I, I. I have a. Uh, I have grandchildren who are all very talented. Three of them are triplets. And they're all at MIT. Oh, really? So you're you're busy all the time. There's there's no dearth of things to keep no. you occupied. No, I, I, I've the last time I was bored, I think, was when I was 11. <laughs> That's a fair uh, fair statement. So if the triplets at MIT or any other millennials or recent graduates were to come up to you and say. Uh, Ed Thorpe, I'm thinking about a career in finance or investing. What sort of advice would you give them? I'd say play to your strengths and your skills. Do what you like to do. And if you do what you like to do, then you're going to do better than if you do something that you think you should do but don't want to do. And try to plan your life so that you're spending your time with good people. That sounds like, that sounds like good advice. And, and my final question, what do you know today about investing that you wish you knew 50 years ago when you were getting started? I would like to have known that I could have bought Berkshire Hathaway at 12 <laughs> <laughs> instead, that, of a, instead of 982. So, so that's the, the key thing is prescience about the success of, of Warren Buffett. I will tell you a lot of people would have liked to buy Berkshire Hathaway under a thousand. <laughs> so even twelve is uh, even even where you got in is better than where most people got in. Um, Ed Thorpe, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This is this has been an absolute delight. We have been speaking with Ed Thorpe. I, I will 
uh, pound the table on a couple of his books. A Man for All Markets is his most recent book. It's really, it's more than uh, than a biography. It's a history of what's happened in finance over the past half century, including the rise of hedge funds, the rise of quants, the rise of all sorts of things told from a unique perspective of somebody who not only beat the dealer and beat the markets, but has, has um, learned a lot of secrets about life that, that many of us should learn. Um, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, or Bloomberg.com, and you can see the other 150 or so such conversations uh, we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank some of the people who helped to put this podcast together. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Taylor Riggs is our producer booker. Medina Parwada is our audio engineer who helps make these things sound as good as they actually do. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org.